Hello, world-class listeners. Before we start today's show, we wanted to let you know that world-class host and former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, has a new book called From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. In his book, McFall offers a revelatory inside account of U.S.-Russia relations from 1989 to the present. The book is now available on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Again, it's called From Cold War to Hot Peace. You are listening to World Class, a program on international affairs from the Freeman Spokley Institute for International Studies at Stanford. I am Gerhard Kasper, a senior fellow at the Institute and President Emeritus of Stanford University. By March of next year, the United Kingdom is likely to exit the European Union. Why and how are questions of great concern to the future of European politics? Today, we are honored to be joined by Sir Nick Clegg, a prominent Liberal Democrat who served as leader of the party from 2007 to 2015 and as Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 2010 until 2015. He is well known as a critic of Brexit. We should disclose that. Welcome, Nick. Very good to be here. That's one of the worst kept secrets, I think, of my views. (laughs) Right. Let me begin with an autobiographical observation. I grew up in Hamburg, and uh, Hamburg is, of course, the most Anglophile city in Germany. And uh, when Britain did not join the common market at the beginnings, many of us were very distressed. But then, of course, in 1963, finally, the UK decided it wanted to be part of it, and de Gaulle vetoed it. And uh, I remember my own sense of distress. I was still living in Hamburg at the time uh, about the de Gaulle veto. I indeed remember his uh, press conference. And um, de Gaulle said she, meaning England, uh, as he referred to it, she has in all her doings very marked and very original habits and traditions. In short, the nature the structure, the very situation that our England's differ profoundly from those of the Continentals. And then, of course, in 1967, when he vetoed you a second time, he said England was characterized by a deep-seated hostility toward the European construction. Now, many years later, was de Gaulle right, basically? What a question. And it is amazing, isn't it, how history um, casts a shadow and so many of those considerations about whether Britain is, who's, is Britain's identity somehow separate and more uh, more of an island nation uh, detached from the mainland continent in, in all, is, is a question which of course now was posed by de Gaulle and is now um, right at the centre stage of the debate again. The short answer is I think he was actually right in some of his analysis of the uh, sort of different trajectories of mainland, it's called mainland European history for some of the, certainly for some of the large powers like France and Germany and Britain. But I think he came to the wrong conclusion. I don't believe the the conclusion when observing the differences of culture, language, history, in particular, the kind of island 
culture and mentality and history of of Britain as a sort of seafaring nation. I don't think the conclusion of that should then be, and therefore we can't share a common home. Uh, On that basis, you could say now that, um, and indeed there are people who now say that it was a mistake to have the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, join the European Union because they're too different. Or you could say my wife is Spanish. The Iberian Peninsula has an even more distinct history than Britain does compared to France and Germany. If you you have 700 years of Moorish uh, occupation, a completely different trajectory. Spain wasn't part of the First or the Second World Wars. What are we now going to say? Because their history and culture is rather different to the way it looks from Paris or Brussels or Berlin. The Iberian Peninsula cannot be part of the European Union. So I think he was, yes, in correct in analysing the differences, but he was wrong in insisting on a what I would regard as a quite a purist and rather narrow interpretation of what European integration should be about. And by the way, the fascinating thing is, I hear I was in The Hague a couple of weeks ago giving a speech and a Dutchman said to me, slightly more politely than this, he said, it's basically a good thing you're going. It was a mistake that you Brits pushed the European uh, Union to expand into Central Eastern Europe. And it's high time that we retreat back to the original purpose of the uh, you know, the core six and certainly the core countries which are now part of the Eurozone. To which I said to him, yeah, I can I can see the case that you're making, but but, you know, be under no illusions what you would then be creating. You would be creating a union which is smaller and purer but much, much more irrelevant in the affairs of the world. And I don't think that's what we should be aspiring to in Europe. Nick, you gave a talk at Stanford yesterday, which I had the privilege to attend. And you made a point uh, that struck me as very important and most of the time overlooked in the discussion about Brexit. And that was that while the continental countries, in particular the six original members, uh, uh, France, Germany, Italy, and the Benelux countries, had emotional reasons uh, to push for the unification of Europe and for peace on the continent, Mm. uh, you argued yesterday that those emotions were really lacking in Britain. Say a little more about that. Yes, I th- I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm 51 now, so I was too young to remember the circumstances in the early, late 60s and early 70s in which this debate came to a head. But my reading of history suggests very clearly to me that the creation of the European community by the original founding six member states in the 1950s, of course, it was about technical things like the coal and steel community to deal with the, you know, the industrial right. uh, region in the Alsace-Lorraine region, the creation of the common agricultural Ooh, policy yeah. to mm-hmm. entrench uh, in- independence, uh, autonomy in the production of food in a continent that was suffering from acute food shortage, food shortages right. at the time, all of that. But it was clearly and indisputably for Schumann and Monet and all the founding they were all founding fathers, as it happens, not mothers, of no. the European community. It was above and beyond everything else uh, an economic route by which a bigger strategic aim could be achieved. In other words, to make war unthinkable. And again, we forget that the original impulse of European integration was to create the European defence community, mm-hmm. yeah, which was right. vetoed by the French mm-hmm. uh, Assemblée Nationale. And then what Schumann and Monet did by then taking a more technocratic economic route, was in a sense a second best. But the the intention at that time had always been 
to consolidate peace by making sure that war, particularly between France and Germany, would be unthinkable. In other words, I think emotionally, there was a direct link between the act of economic integration and people's own identity of their own communities and their own nations. I think what is so different for the United Kingdom is that when the United Kingdom finally joined after the double non of de Gaulle um, and finally joined in 1973, it was done far, far from a place of sort of positive emotional assertion. It was done almost out of a sense of kind of resignation out of a sense of comparative uh -huh. weakness, out of mm -hmm. a sense of decline. It was, mm -hmm. you know, we'd st the country had stood aloof rather patronizingly f at the Messina conference in the 1950s right. from European integration, then tried to get in, was rebuffed, then finally got in. And it was very much done in a spirit of, oh, well, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. And, and the debate, interestingly, in the subsequent referendum so we've had, you know, we've had, had, we've had a previous referendum. Another, yes, exactly. Referendum, in 1975, was all about, you know, would it, would it, it was all actually about the kind of com so-called Commonwealth preference. Would New Zealand lamb or New Zealand butter be more expensive? And would, would the weekly shop be more affordable to working families in the United Kingdom? And we, so in other words, the British idiom, if I could put it like that, in which the European issue has been debated has always been a sort of rather bloodless cost-benefit analysis and has lacked the um, almost visceral emotional commitment that other countries have understandably felt. And I think that's been reflected in this constant ambivalence in which the United Kingdom mm -hmm. has wanted to be in but have lots of exemptions and opt-outs. And now the United Kingdom appears to want to be out mm -hmm. with lots of opt-ins. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, yes. So, you know, we've always had this half-in, half-out attitude right. right from the beginning. Um, you mentioned the 1975 referendum. As far as I understand, there have been only three referenda in UK history, I mean nationwide, uh, for the entire UK. Uh, two de have dealt with the European Union, the one in 75 and the recent one. And one was on some constitutional issues that I, are too remote for me to understand. But my fear... Though they were very close to my heart. <laughs> that uh, referendum, uh, I, I triggered that referendum. I, I see. And, okay. and I should say I, fa I failed. I was on the losing <laughs> side of that one as well. Don't travel down no, that road. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but my field is constitutional constitutional law and constitutional history. And I have, of course, done some comparative constitutional law in my life. And uh, I always thought the essence of the British constitution, or so I was told, was the sovereignty of parliament. Uh, what has happened to the sovereignty of parliament? I'm, I'm astounded that you have a referenda to begin with, mm. uh, and then now take them so seriously instead of giving the last word to parliament. Uh, I don't have a neat answer. I'm, I'm as perplexed as you are that this venerable, proud, almost unique, unbroken tradition of, of representative parliamentary democracy has been so quickly shredded and discredited uh, you know, by the terms and tenor of the debate around Brexit in this referendum. And of course, as you might remember, that Margaret Thatcher, not otherwise someone I regularly invoke uh, positively, um, uh, was a staunch opponent of referenda because she said, quite rightly, that referenda are the antithesis of British representative yes. parliamentary mm -hmm. traditions. And of course, the, 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 the odd ironic twists and turns get even more peculiar because 
when Parliament legislated for this referendum, Parliament was very explicit that it was only an advisory referendum and that the final decision did indeed remain with Parliament. But that legal, constitutional advisory status of the referendum was immediately forgotten. Um, so could I, may I interrupt? Yes, of course. Uh, so uh, given the incredible, incredibly close outcome of yeah. the referendum, less than two percentage points, about 50%, 51.7 or something like that, right? Um, Parliament could have said that is too small for us to act on. Well, th- this is where the, in as much as it's worth uh, praising the traditions of parliamentary representative democracy, the United Kingdom, in my view, has one huge Achilles heel, which is it doesn't have a written constitution. Right. And in the, and it's the only major power in Europe, only major democracy, which doesn't have one. And what that means is that, uh, in effect, if the executive of the day wants to, as David Cameron wanted to, almost flippantly want to hold a plebiscite, there are no rules of the game which says, well, if you want to do that, you now need to, under our constitution, right. meet certain requirements, which exists, well, clearly, I mean, it's almost prohibited, I think, in the German constitution, yes. almost, but and actually explicitly prohibited in others. And in other countries, there are what I call crash barriers. You know, you can't hold a referendum until you have a supermajority in parliament supporting it, or you have a certain minimum turnout of the electorate, or you have to have a certain um, majority of all eligible voters in the you know, to oh. carry the final vote. Mm-hmm. All of that was dispensed with. There was almost no consideration given mm-hmm. to putting some straightforward checks and balances and qualifications to the way in which the referendum was run. Parenthetically, the reason there, there were none was because David Cameron and his government were so confident they were going to win. <laughs> yes. I'm afraid good old-fashioned hubris played a right. big role in this. Yeah. I'm convinced uh-huh. if they... Uh-huh knew then what they know now, I think they would have definitely sought to give 16 and 17-year-olds the vote. They would have legislated to make sure there was a basic, as I say, minimum turnout. And by the way, that's something we've had in Britain before. In the 1979 referendum in Scotland on devolved powers to Scotland, there was a legal requirement written into the bill, the the, the Act of Parliament that established the referendum, that there had to be, I think it was 40% of all voters had to vote for uh, the the, the proposed measure. And that that, um, threshold was not met. So in a sense, what has happened in answer to your question to to the tradition of parliamentary sovereignty is that a combination of this, I would argue, almost hysterically obsessive preoccupation with Europe, particularly on the right of British politics, the immense, immense influence of very powerful vested interests, particularly in the right-wing newspapers in our country, and the absence of any written rules in a constitution, concatenated, combined, Mm -hmm. to create the circumstances in which, curiously enough, the greatest advocates of British sovereignty, often those who advocate Brexit, are now complicit complicit in the hollowing out of parliamentary sovereignty. sovereignty. And, of course, that's something which people on my side of the argument constantly point out. to say, hang on a minute, you told us that Brussels was this ghastly place because it kept telling our British parliament what to do. And now you are, in effect, neutering our own parliament. But for them, here's the final point I'd make. The interesting thing is, for them, the holy grail of Brexit 
is now immeasurably more important mm -hmm. than the principles of parliamentary uh, sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And that's why it has become subservient to that, mm -hmm. to that aim. In the, the Stanford talk you gave yesterday that I mentioned before, you said something quite stunning. Uh, you said the referendum had nothing to do with the European Union. And uh, please explain that. <laughs> no, I don't think it did. I, I, I mean, sometimes it's it's worth illustrating these things by anecdote. And um, for, for, anecdotes for, for, are welcome. For, okay, are most me. Welcome. I, I think most you, I think welcome. you've heard this before. But let me let me just perhaps tell you something which certainly made a huge impression on me. I remember on the evening before. Uh, the referendum was held. And so on the evening of the 22nd of June 2016, I was standing on a street corner in my then constituency in a wonderful northern city of England called Sheffield. And I was urging passers-by uh, to vote tomorrow and vote remain. And I encountered a, a chap who I knew uh, because I'd helped his, his daughter who had um, learning difficulties get into a specialist school. A big chap. Uh, he was a self-employed builder, tattoos on his arm, and he cheerily greeted me uh, and I said oh hi you know how are you going to vote tomorrow he said Brexit I said oh you don't want to do that and, th and then he, well he first said don't worry you're going to win anyway which I always yes. I always remember because right. expectations have a profound impact on how people vote usually uh, more than people sometimes appreciate but then he said something to me which is relevant to your question he said look Nick I'm not going to put my tick next to a box which says remain as if everything should remain the same he said I am working longer hours than I ever have done. I'm working every hour God gives me, and yet every week and every month, ever since that awful crash in 2008, I'm taking less money home for my kids, for my elderly parents, for my family, for the people I love and care about. And it was your fault, you, you politicians, uh, who say everything's great now, and the bankers who screwed up, and none of them have gone to prison, and the regulators were asleep at the wheel. I'm fed up with this. Anything is better than this. And what was so revealing about that was, of course, I could have tried to explain to him that making the country poorer, which I think is inevitably going to happen as we leave the European Union, he's not going to help him. He's not going to help his earnings. But emotionally, I could mm. totally understand mm. his anger with the status quo. And my point mm. was that anger wasn't invented or the, the genesis of those problems were not invented in Brussels. If anything, they were invented in the awful risk-taking in the British banks and the mm -hmm. failure of British governments and regulators, and there he was right, mm -hmm. to protect people from that. And, and my view is, particularly in the light of the very, very wafer-thin majority that was finally, uh, finally determined the outcome of the referendum, my hunch, I can't prove this, so it's just an assertion, is that if 2008 had not happened... I actually don't think the United Kingdom would have voted for Brexit. I also suspect that Brexit, uh, that Trump might not have been elected as as, as uh, president here. I, I personally think, having spoken to countless, countless good, decent people in my then constituency in Sheffield, which is as good a scientific sample as any pollster can come up with, I think the legitimate anger about years and years of public spending cuts, of reductions in earnings, in wage stagnation, for reasons that had nothing to do with them, I think that anger, that legitimate anger, um, is, is the most important, immediate sort of wellspring for, for, uh, for, the, for the Brexit vote. The Brexit vote for many people, as I say, was a, was a, was a wonderful opportunity to kick the status quo. It often happens in referenda. 
And there were good reasons to kick the status quo, but the reasons were not, they were not EU reasons. Uh, you know, the, the wage stagnation, what mm. happened in the banks, our failure in the United Kingdom to build enough mm. homes, mm. our failure to fix the social care system, our failure to provide the same equality of esteem to vocational education as academic qualification. Mm. All the, I think, the profound imbalances in the UK, they weren't invented by Eurocrats in mm. Brussels, not mm. at all. Mm. So, Nick, uh, the hardest thing for somebody who has a deep interest in Brexit, as I do certainly, is to understand what is happening at present. And more importantly, what are the likeliest deals to come out of the present negotiations between the May government and uh, the European Union. Uh, I look at The Guardian every morning and there's a lot of news uh, uh, about Brexit. But I must confess, if I really wanted to understand what the state of affairs is, uh, I would have to devote much more time than I'm doing now. Uh, so I rely on you to tell me what you think are the likeliest deals that will come out of this. Well, I will try and be objective, but I, I, I confess that um, I struggle to separate what I hope will happen from what I think will happen. But let me try and uh, put my hopes in a box and try and give you a, uh, an, un, uh, an, an entirely objective or largely objective assessment. I think the most likely, likely outcome is that the United Kingdom government, Theresa May, will put to Parliament this autumn and winter a so-called deal, which actually on closer scrutiny is not a deal at all that there'll be bits of it where the canvas will be filled in with detail about how much money the United Kingdom's going right. to pay to the European Union, right. what the rights of EU citizens in the United Kingdom will be and so on. But most of the rest of it will be, in effect, a promise to talk more and to negotiate more and to uh, aspire towards the best possible trade deal. And my fear is that the most likely outcome is that most MPs in the end will vote for that. I don't think they should. And if I was an MP, I certainly wouldn't. So, so this But, will be just a bill on principles, well, this rudimentary is, yes, or whatever. And, and this is, if I'm, um, do stop me if you think this is too much detail, but it's quite no. important to remember this. The terms of this, there's a famous Article 50 Yes, in the course, Treaty of the European Union, which is supposed yeah. to govern, which, by the way, when drafted, no one ever thought it was going to be put into practice, but never mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it governs the circumstances in which uh, a member state can leave the European Union. And crucially, under the terms of the European Union, all that is required to be settled in detail, what I, I would call short-term issues, like the ones I mentioned, money, rights of EU citizens, and crucially, and I'll come back to this, Uh, but this is what the, the EU27 have quite rightly focused on, uh, the effect on the Irish border, the border between Northern yes, Ireland. I'll, I'll, come, back, I'll come, come back to that. Yes, I hope come you back to that minute. But the, but the Article 50 is quite explicit that the agreement to leave is done only, only with, I think the language is, with a view to the future framework of relations between the country oh, and mm. the EU. In other words, there's no legal obligation right on the EU27 to, to cross all the T's really. and dot all the I's. Mm. Now, I think, um, of course, it is a terrible mistake, uh, or it would be a terrible mistake, for the British Parliament to consent to an exit from the European Union without knowing where we're going. Right. I mean, it's, it, yes. it, but, but, but I have to acknowledge uh -huh. that is, in effect, what Article 50 says. So mm. my fear and my, expect, my expectation of the most likely outcome is that Basically, we embark upon this exit, we pass 
beyond the point of no return. In other words, we leave legally at 11 p.m. UK time on the 29th of March 2019 before we actually know, for instance, really, with any substantive detail, what the trading arrangements are between um, the United Kingdom and the European Union. To give you an example, the, lots of government ministers talk about, well, we could have a, we'll have a trading arrangement similar to Canada's trading arrangement with the European Union, but with some, with some knobs on, with some additional flourishes. We'll call it Canada plus, 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 plus. I mean, without going into the interminable details of this, I don't think people have yet realised that to go from the single market, which is probably the most accomplished yes. state of open borderless trade, right. right down several divisions, leagues down to a, a, a trade agreement like we have with Canada, with a third country, would be an act of protectionism, of, mm. of the reintroduction mm. of mm. barriers to trade, willingly voluntarily, on a scale that no British government, certainly in the post-war period, has ever done. So it's, it's the great irony is that people talk about free trade agreements. Actually, the free trade agreements that would replace our membership of the single market and the customs union will be anti-trade agreements. There'll, right. be, there'll be trade restriction yeah. agreements. So that's what I think is the most likely outcome. Two possible caveats. Firstly, I personally think the Irish border question is a question without a solution. There is no solution to it. Because you, you either have a border or you don't have a border. And the UK government is basically, it's, it's, if I may just dwell on this for, yeah. for those who are interested yes, in this. So at the time of the referendum, <clears throat> the Brexiteers said to the British people, one of the reasons you should vote for Brexit is so that we, have, we take back control, in that resonant phrase, we take back control of our borders. And I heard this a lot on the doorsteps in Sheffield, that people really, they liked the idea of however imprecise it was. Then a decision was to leave the European Union. Now that means that a new land border has been created that didn't exist before between the UK and the European Union. We didn't have a land border between the UK and the EU. That is now the border, Would but be of course, the Irish, between, the, well, yeah. between the Northern Ireland, which is in the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland. Now those same people who said they wanted to take control of our borders, are now falling over themselves to say, well, of course we've got this border, but we don't want to take control of it. So there's this fundamental fiction in which a border has been created, but the same advocates of Brexit somehow want to deny that it will be a border. And this is where all these arguments about customs arrangements come into play. It is technically impossible to be out of the European Union's customs union, in other words, to have a different set right. of tariffs and to not share the com common external tariff, right. it is technically impossible to be out of the, the European Union's single market with all the, all the rules, harmonised rules on everything from phytosanitary standards to licensing requirements to consumer protection. You can't be out of those arrangements and not have some mechanism by which you monitor what comes in and out sure. uh, mm -hmm. of your separate market over the border. And at the same time, and it's amazing how fate can uh, hand out the cards in such an exquisitely um, painful manner, the United Kingdom government is dependent for its parliamentary majority on the Democratic on the, Unionist Party in, in Belfast, yeah. who absolutely refuse under any circumstance to right. have arrangements which separate Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom. And by the way, at this stage, I'm sure many listeners are losing the plot on this, but it, the, the, the sum total of it is that because of the DUP in Belfast, because the Dublin government, quite understandably, is adamant that there shouldn't be any return to sort of border checks, and because of the 
almost fictional quality with which the British government is asserting that they can somehow have a border but not really have a border, I don't think that's going to be sorted. Now, that therefore does uh, pose the possibility that the EU27 says, hang on a minute, you haven't done what we agreed, which was that we would come up with a solution for the Irish border. And on that basis, we're not going to proceed. That is, I think, possible because the... the not the, going to proceed with what? Well, not going to proceed with, 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 with a deal. Ah, with, with, with right. A, you know, yeah, because, right. because that bit of the homework right. Right. has right. not been done, has not been completed. Um, uh, and then, of course, that would cause outrage in the United Kingdom. So I think that might lead, might lead to perhaps a push to extend the Article 50 deadline and to give more time for the talks. Um, it also might encourage MPs to withhold their consent from the deal altogether, which my personal view is the best way out of this mess. I think this has become now so messy, so vituperative, so divisive, so so damaging to the fabric of Britain's democracy and economy and, and social solidarity that I think it would be very wise for the United Kingdom government to say, look, in those circumstances... We're not. We're going to withhold our consent. That may then, of course, lead to, I don't know, maybe another general election, or maybe even it'll encourage people to uh, um, advocate uh, another referendum on the sort of terms of the deal. But I, I, in other words, I think the most likely outcome is that government gets its way, but gets its way in a very, very sort of, I think, rather kind of um, opaque, if if not slightly dishonest way, because it'll all be about sort of jam tomorrow, and oh, don't worry, we'll sort this out later. My hope, which is more a hope rather than expectation, but it's a hope based on maybe a 20% chance of it happening, is that the UK government says the parliament, in line with the parliamentary traditions that you quite mm. rightly alluded to earlier, says, hang on a minute, it is our constitutional duty to withhold consent and to challenge the government because you have not proceeded in the way that, that, that you should have right. done, or indeed the way that you promised to the British people. Right. See, one final question. Um, let us assume uh, Brexit uh, occurs, uh, something mm. you don't want and I don't want either. But let us assume Brexit occurs. What will then happen to the UK's relationship to the rest of the world? Let us assume they will somehow sort out some deal with the European Union. Uh, but uh, some of this was based on the notion that Britain would once again be yeah. free to relate yeah. to everybody else uh, from the US to uh, uh, the rest of Asia, etc. What, what, what will happen? Well, I think your question really strikes at the very, very heart uh, of Britain's um, self-image and actually relates directly to what de Gaulle said about Britain in the 60s. There is a very strongly held view. And I, I, by the way, I disagree with it, but I, I recognize it's a sincerely held view amongst a lot of people that Britain's open trading, seafaring, maritime uh, traditions are best served by Britain seeking out new trade relationships and new commercial opportunities around the world. And that being part of the European Union is constraining it from doing so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it is impossible to exaggerate how seductive this narrative is. And it's one which goes very deep in British history. So, it, it, you know, I disagree with it, but it, it's important not to dismiss it. It goes very, very deep. It goes really back right to our kind of history of, as you alluded to earlier, of being a, 
maritime nation with a little small stretch of sea between ourselves and the main continent. For, for centuries, Britain tried to refrain from getting sucked into sort of mainland European conflicts, mm. tried to balance the different powers, usually between Germany and France and so on. And so this uh, language of what Theresa May and her ministers call global Britain, global Britain will be freed, will be uh, freed from the shackles of European Union bureaucracy and membership to seek out as a swashbuckling, buccaneering, seafaring nation, new trade deals with Donald Trump, with China, with India, with Papua New Guinea, with everybody else in between. I'll come in a minute why I disagree with it so much, but it is very, very emotionally resonant. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it, it's, in my view, it's about the only remaining story that Brexiteers have to tell in a way that is attractive to the British people. Now, why do I disagree with it? I disagree with it for one simple reason. Geography. It ignores geography. Geography still remains, despite technological change and the digital era and the internet and all the rest of it, geography still remains the single biggest determinant of how two economies trade with each other. There is a reason why the United Kingdom trades more with what if it's the 4.1 or something, four and a half million people in Ireland than it does with the mm. giants of India and China combined. Right. There is a reason why Mexico... And now most trade is with the European Union, of isn't course, it? Yeah. Close to half of our, yeah. our, our mm. exports. Uh, there's a reason why Canada and Mexico mm. trade more with the United States and always will do them mm. than the United Kingdom because it's right next door. In other words, neighbourliness and geography is something which the nice narrative... Of the Brexiteers, is they're seeking to abolish geography, which I think is as absurd as saying you can abolish time. Mm -hmm. So they're pursuing something which I, of course, acknowledge is very emotionally resonant. It does draw on a long British cultural tradition, but it flies in the in the face of the facts of how you trade. And what they're basically saying to the British people is, we will forego, we will sacrifice this extraordinary thing we built in our own in our own neighbourhood the single market, which, by the way, was championed, of course, as you'll remember at the time, by British governments, notably by Margaret Thatcher. But in compensation, we will be able to find this cornucopia of new trade deals mm -hmm. elsewhere. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that that is either possible or deliverable. And so the thing that one of the reasons why people like me still talk out so loudly on this with such conviction is that I think the British people are being led towards a vision of Britain that is false. It is deeply, profoundly false and misleading. And it is based on a utopian idea that somehow geography does, and location doesn't matter. And by the way, I won't get into all the statistics. The government's own analysis suggests, for instance, that an all-singing, all-dancing new trade deal with Donald Trump, with America, would only add about, I think, 0.2% to EU GDP, mm. to UK GDP, sorry. <coughs> so as one uh, former uh, British trade official put it rather brilliantly the other day, it's like, it's like trading in a, a, a five-course meal, a cordon bleu meal, for a packet of crisps. It, it, you know, and, and that's why it's so important that in these final months where we still can change course that we don't pursue this sort of si this siren voices which do hark back almost this has almost sort of sepia tinted sort of neo-imperial flavor to it you know the, the back to the days of gunboat diplo diplomacy when britain ruled the waves and I, I understand sentiment as much as anybody else but it's just not going to serve our kids and our grandkids 
well. And, that, and that's why I very much hope that the uh, fallacies behind the so-called vision of global Britain will give way to a um, um, greater realism about where we are physically, tectonically and geographically, geologically located, which is Europe. Thank you, Nick. That was a fascinating. You, these were fascinating insights you offered us. Our guest today was Sir Nick Clegg, uh, and uh, we are very delighted that you came to Stanford and came to FSI. Thank Lovely you. to be here. Thank you. You have been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spokley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why. <laughs>